0: Guida Van Rossum is quoted as saying, code is read much more often than it is written, and I definitely find that to be true. And it's definitely true for production code, but I think it might even be more so true for test code. When you're trying to understand why a test is failing, you'll be very grateful to the test author if they've taken the time and care to make it readable. David Seddon came up with six principles to help us write more readable tests. We'll discuss these today as well as more benefits of readable tests. Thank you Patreon supporters for your continued support, and thank you PyCharm for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to Testing Code, Python testing for software engineers. I am excited today on Testing Code to have David Seddon on, and we're going to talk about readable tests, but let's uh, find out who you are first. So, David, who are you? Hi, Brian. Well, um, so I'm a
1: Django developer. I've been working pretty much exclusively with Django for maybe 10 years, and the sites that I tend to work on are quite sort of business logic heavy. So I currently work in the energy sector. The monolith I work on has in terms of numbers of python modules in the thousands oh, wow. so it's sort of big complex backends, and as a result i sort of i've sort of got a side obsession of how to organize code so that you don't get into a terrible mess i sort of give talks and write blog entries I've got a couple of open source packages out there to try and help people with those problems
0: okay so that's um how to organize so if you've got thousands thousands of modules that's a big project. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it's pretty complicated. That's all under a, it's a, a Django project? That's a Django project, yeah. Okay. So that would be interesting in and of itself, how to organize it. <laughs> well, have me back again. Yeah. We'll tell you to, about that. Have to have you <laughs> back again. Yeah, that's good. So how do we get from there to readable tests? Do you do a lot of testing on this? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think that testing and test-driven development are a really big part of um, code design. And I guess this the idea of what i want to talk about today is about test readability and this is just sort of a side thing that i've noticed that i haven't really heard many people point out and i gave a talk on it at PyCon uk uh, last year and people seem to be saying yeah that chimes with our experience so essentially it's the idea that there's that when you go to the production code it can be quite good quality, but you head on over to the tests and your heart sinks a bit because it's all a bit difficult to read and understand and you don't really wanna go there. You're certainly not gonna go to the tests to find out how your software works. And yeah, I think that's a shame. And so um, I sort of come up with a few principles to help talk about how we can make our tests more readable. Oh, cool.
0: I like lists. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Should we go through these principles and how they help? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's it's a bit of a grab bag, really. But, you know, it's good to throw things into a list, even if they don't really fit into a list. <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> well, before we get into it, I just want to, I, I guess, say that I do agree with you. It's a shame hmm. the tests are, I don't really buy the notion that some people say the benefits of tests and testing with development is that your tests become a living documentation. Mm. That would be sad if that was your only living documentation because there's a lot of stuff you want to do with tests that are possibly not the best way to learn how to use a piece of software. But if we can make tests more like documentation for how to use the API, that's a cool thing. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. I think there's kind of three
1: main benefits to tests being readable. Because obviously tests bring you other things, even if they're not readable, like, you know, tells you if there's been a, a regression or something. But I think that you can sort of think of it as the sort of life cycle of development. So the first thing that they bring is when you're trying to kind of understand what to build in the first place. So I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone's sort of said, okay, we've got this feature, but it hasn't really been that clear when it gets down to it what you're meant to be building sort of a bit vaguely specified, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's something I, I would say is the case for almost every feature I build. There's a sort of discovery process where you're like, yeah, we're trying to solve this problem. Maybe this is the solution, but you haven't kind of worked at all the the details of exactly what the solution is. So something that I have found works quite well is to write a test first that clarifies exactly what you're trying to achieve and then even review that before you go into implementing it because you might have misunderstood what you're trying to build. So, does that make sense as a sort of first reason? It kind of clarifies the scope.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You can uh, bring in multiple team members to try to understand to make sure that you're really looking at the right scope as well. Exactly. Exactly.
1: I think, like, once you sort of drill down into scope, like, it can open new questions and you can think well do we need to do it like this you know yeah so that's the first reason i think also as you say there's the living documentation side of things like if tests are something that you can go to that actually explain how things work that's really really helpful and um some of the tests that i've written i do go to and look at to remind me like in a year's time whatever And I really appreciate those tests because I can rely on them actually being a real reflection of reality rather than some sort of outdated doc string or something. And then the third reason is that they help you change your code. If you've got a nice readable test, then you can go to it and you can make the little tweak that embodies the change to the feature or the change in behavior. And it's really obvious what you're doing if that test is If that test well factored, then it's easier to edit and change in a meaningful way.
0: Yeah, and if you're changing behavior, hopefully you don't have to change tons of tests. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Agreed. Yeah, I was just thinking one of the times when I use use tests to help me understand the code and to understand the behavior and the intent is often with uh, things like um, like an open source project and uh, a lot of open source projects require the tests to be part of a pull request Mm. looking at how somebody added tests to to a change can tell you a lot about which corner cases they've already thought about and stuff like that
1: yeah absolutely yeah that's an interesting one i've I've not really done that but i think you're right
0: thank you pycharm for sponsoring this episode pycharm 2020.1 is out and oh what a treat Git integration was already amazing, but now it's even better. You can do interactive rebasing. That's cool. You can choose to have the commit window appear as a tool window next to your code instead of a pop-up. I really like that. Branch searching is now easier and you can even install Git right from PyCharm. Heck, you can now even install Python right from PyCharm. There's improvements to the virtual environment support and improved support for adding packages to requirements.txt files if you use those. There's even a new charm command line tool that opens a light edit version quick edit jobs that don't require all the bells and whistles. You can split the terminal window now to see the output of two commands at once. You can configure the status bar. There's improved database support with SQL script run configurations. They've even improved the font with the JetBrains mono typeface. Now that's attention to detail. You got to check this out. And you may as well start with the pro version. It's free for four months, only if you go to testandcode.com PyCharm. Save time, use PyCharm. So if those are the reasons, like these are the, here comes
1: the list. So it's six principles. I think probably rather than rattling them off, we could just talk through them one by one. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So the first principle, I feel like this one is preaching to the converted, probably for people that listen to this podcast. It's profit from the work of others. So this is really just about using third party tools. And the the classic example is PyTest, which sometimes I've had colleagues who weren't familiar with PyTest, sort of asked me, why do we use PyTest? What actually is it? And I, my best answer is, apart from many other things, like its biggest value add is that it removes loads of the boilerplate and it allows you to write more readable code. I, I get the impression from listening to other episodes that PyTest is you know something that everyone likes and uses. So maybe I don't need to talk much more about
0: that. <laughs> yeah, but I like the, be- the, the, the benefit of PyTest allowing more readable tests. Um, there's definitely people that would argue, I would not argue against that. But uh, I guess the only downside is um, you have to make sure that you, people on the team know where to find the fixtures if you're us- yeah, using fixtures.
1: I would totally agree. And actually, this is a matter of opinion, but I find fixtures, I'm not sure about fixtures. Like, I don't like the way in which you can't tell where these things have come from Uh, i'd rather import it personally but there are some amazing things about fixtures but i mean i guess what i'm talking about is more like the being able to do natural assertions rather than having to do self.assert equals and things like that i think that's where where it really shines in terms of readability yeah definitely agreed and a couple of other ones web test i don't know if you've featured this on the podcast before but it's a really
0: nice... I do not think
1: so. Oh, it's, it's great. It's like a, it's a Python API around interacting with web applications, and it's, it's just got a lovely, simple API. Like, for example, you make an HTTP request, and you get the response object, and then if there's a form in that response object, then you can just do response.form, and then you can fill out the form as if it was a dictionary, and then just do response.form.submit, there's just lots of lovely stuff like that in web test nice. so that's worth a look and factory boy is another great one for creating state I think so that's the first principle just use stuff that other people have done profit from the work of others
0: yeah so web te- did slight divergence looks like web test was part of uh the pylons project but I assume since you're bringing it up that you can use it for really just anything there's Django web test which is a uh,
1: I think it's a plug into web test somehow so that's specifically okay. the flavor we use. Okay. Oh, um, yeah. See that, too. Neat. Yeah. All right. So that's principle one. <laughs> principle two is um, put naming to work. So we know that naming is really important in, in code factoring. Here's just a couple of nice tips. So when you name your test functions, how do you name them? Like, they're never being called by any, anything. So it's tempting, I think, just to just sort of to call it anything. I'll give an example. Let's say there's a test called uh, test number available. That's the kind of sort of typical test that I think you see a lot that I'm tempted to write as well. It doesn't really say very much. And what you can do is craft it as a more verbose sentence. So you could say instead, test add to cart reduces number available. You kind of craft it almost like it's the comment but it's the name of the function. That's a pattern I've seen some people use. I love it, yeah. It's really simple, no no extra code. Another thing is how you name your variables. So for example, let's say we need to get some dates to do some tests on these dates. So if I were to name three dates and they're all different dates and I call them date one, date two, and date three, What are they? I I don't know how to interpret this data. Can they just be any date? Is there a relationship between the dates? Is there some significance if, say, one of the dates is the first of the month or in a leap year? So if you're just calling them date one, date two, and date three, it doesn't say anything unless you put some comments around it or something. But what you can do is name your variables so that it communicates the intent of what that data means. So For example, if it just needs to be a date and it doesn't matter what date it is, I'll often just call it some date or arbitrary date or something. And then the reader knows it doesn't matter. And then like that could be date one, for example. And then maybe the other two dates are earlier date and later date. And suddenly... You know, all the meaning comes out. It's no extra work, but it's so much more expressive code.
0: Then people can visually inspect your ins- assertions. So if your assertion is like assert that uh, earlier date is less than date or some date or something, then it's like obvious. Oh, yeah, of course that should be true. So
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, so that's
1: naming. I mean, there's loads of you can do with that, but just making sure we do it in tests as well. I think tests suffer from something that production code doesn't suffer from which is like what the hell does this sample data mean it's often really not obvious when you come back to it later
0: yeah and i suffer from the um the using something like date one or something because i put the intent that it doesn't matter but um that's a great one. Just to use like some or any, any date or some date. Yeah. Any. Like
1: that. That's nice.
0: The one of the things that I, I just I was doing this morning was renaming my test functions to reflect what they're actually testing. When I'm starting exploring a, a feature, writing a test around around it, the intent of the test that I started might not be the same as the test that I end up with. Mm. And so that's one of the last steps I want to make sure I do is and that's a good time for variable names too is to go through and read the test and what it's really testing and make sure that the test name is reflective of what we're really testing. Yeah, yeah. I had a parameter range test that was supposed to that I ended up I wanted to just check the boundaries of something and while I was down that rabbit hole, I uh, realized that um, two or three of the very vari- uh, parameters interact with each other. And I wanted to me- explore all the maximums to make sure that the different sets that could go in that, ex- that hit the maximum ba- memory value could be done. Mm. And so that was, I mean, at that point, I still needed to write the original test somewhere else, but that test now, my kind of transformed into something else, and yeah. So validating uh, test names before you merge it in and have other people review it, it's a good good thing to check for.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: And it's even more important than, I mean, function names and variable names are important in in all code. Mm. But in tests, the time when people are staring at it is when something's broken and they're trying to figure out what it's supposed to do. So helping yeah, the, totally. <laughs> helping people with that stressful situation is worthwhile putting a little bit more effort in. So. But
1: there's something about tests which is different from production code in that production code kind of it links with the outside world. So like in theory, you should be able to follow the chain somehow of like, in what way is this useful? Who's using it? Like how, what are people's expectations of it? Well, a test sort of exists in and of itself. So you can't actually get any clues apart from the test. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And with tests, you also have intentional magic values. You're picking some data point. So that doesn't happen as much in production code. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's why we need more, more clues. Yep. Yeah. So what's our third principle?
1: So the third principle is show only what matters. This is probably my favorite principle. There are a few different examples of this, but essentially the idea is, I think when you read a test, there's a lot of kind of clutter that obscures the intention of the test. For example, let's say you've got a test that's testing that when you complete an order on a shopping cart, that the cart's emptied. Like the classic test that I see, and I have written a lot of myself as well, is like you've got a few lines where you're setting up the state for that shopping cart. Maybe you're creating like a product that can be added to the shopping cart, and you're saying what the price is, and you're creating a customer as well, and then you remember we're testing what happens when you complete the order so then maybe maybe there's a couple of steps to completing the order so you sort of call those functions and then finally you want to check that the cart's empty maybe that involves you know a couple more statements who knows so and what i find is that you read through these and you're not quite sure what code's under test what's important it's just confusing so what i've started doing is I try to hide everything except the thing I actually care about. So and you can do that in a really simple way just by breaking it out into like private functions. For example, you could rather than have all this setup stuff, if you have got specific setup for this specific test, and you don't want to kind of generalize it and go to all the work of that, just pull it out into a create full cart private function that's in the same module and Then you've just got one line, which is cart equals create full cart. And that's all you need to know. And then then you do it for the the other bits as well. So you, you end up with almost just kind of like English that's just describing what's the important bits of the test. And it hides everything else. I find this really, really helps. Does that make sense? As a yeah, approach?
0: I personally push all, most of that setup into a fixture if possible. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That's definitely a way to do that. So so would you put your fixture just module level, or
0: would you have like some... If it's intended for just for that test function, it can just stay right in that module then.
1: Yeah, mm, mm, of, yeah. of
0: course. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely
1: a way to achieve this.
0: One of the scopes that I like in that case is a class scope. So... I don't use test classes a lot, but if it helps the readability of a test to have a fixture just for that test, grouping them in, into a class makes it obvious that they they go together. Absolutely. Yeah, I do that lots as well. I,
1: I think that's the main reason for doing for using classes, actually. Otherwise, it can be a bit confusing if you're testing lots of things in a module.
0: Yeah. In the thing that you're testing, also, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead or not, but making sure that There's not too many asserts that are asserting on things that don't matter to what you're... Absolutely, yeah.
1: Can I just say one other thing about showing you what matters? So I think it's important to realize, like, to not go too far. So it's kind of like a balance. So I'll give an example. Let's say um, a similar sort of e-commerce example. But let's say we've got a test which creates a full cart, and then it applies a voucher to the cart, And then it asserts that the total of the cart is £11.63. Maybe, uh, is it okay if I uh, talk in terms of British currency? Yeah. £11.63, that's, you know, that's a bit of a weird, where did that number come from? Yeah. And this is an example of where you're hiding too much. Like if you've got a test, which is trying to test about discounts, applying the right percentages, say, then what you want to do is make sure that what you could do is you could pull up in your fixture or private function, or whatever, the ability to specify what the total amount of the cart is as a, an argument and also what the discount percentage of the voucher is. So then in your test, you've hidden all the other, other setup stuff, but you keep the stuff that's relevant to the assertion you're making at the top level. So then you can see, oh, these are the two numbers which Go towards making the number that i'm asserting on yeah so makes sense yeah definitely if you want to go even further then with math stuff i quite like to show my workings so that you really know you could sit there with a calculator and go okay that's that number that's that number that times that okay and then that gives me the unrounded number then this is the moment where rounding happens and that's why i get that final number i always try and show my working
0: when doing mathematical tests that's good definitely and no tricks either it should be just yeah exactly the same same basic math you could do with a calculator Mm -hmm.
1: out of interest i haven't really decided on this one but do you ever see tests where they like do the maths in the assertion so it's like assert Input times output equals expected result.
0: Oh, yeah. And I'm on the fence as to whether that's a good thing or not. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Well, let's stay on the fence. (laughs) However, I do like um, that's a place where being very verbose, I think, is fine. And being able to like name the variables of each individual math component so that when I can turn on show locals with the assertion if there's a failure and I can see actually all the steps with all the values, the intermediate values one way to easily check that if things are going wrong. If the test fails, some part of this went wrong. And if there's a bunch of math in there, you have to go through and figure out which part it is a- anyway. So kind of pre-doing that work is sometimes helpful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think you were moved on to making assertions about, you're asking about assertions
0: of complex data. You were saying um, show what matters, but I guess I was going to, Assert on only what matters. Yeah, so I think you're
1: absolutely right. A problem that I've run into as a Django developer, like a lot of your tests, you have quite complex objects. So I'll assume that people don't know Django really. So a Django model is kind of a, it's an object that maps onto a table in a database. And you might have foreign keys between the tables in the database, which will be in the Python object, Will be, you know, like attributes on the Python object. So you can end up with all these kind of dot separated lookups on a Python model. And you want to check that some of the attributes on some of the things in this object graph have certain values. And I find that what happens is that you end up making loads and loads of different assertions about this. So you're like, let's say you've got an as an example, let's say you've got an order which has lines, multiple lines on the order, and then each line might point to a product, say. You might end up making seven, eight different assertions where you like check the order total, you check the total of each line, check the number of lines on the order, you checked, check that the product on each line is the same as the, the expected product. I find that stuff quite difficult to read. Uh, and also, you only you only know about the assertion that fails, but really you're making a single assertion about data. Do you know what I mean? So one technique that I found really helps with readability of this is that you come up with a, a value object. So when I say a value object, I mean something that, if all its values are the same, then it is the same. So for example, a date is a value object. If the month and the year and the day are the same, then it's the same date. And what you do is you make some value objects like this, or you design a value object that's like a simplified version of your more complex production data, and you transform your production data into the simplified value object. And then you compare that transformed object with a value object that you just instantiate in the test
0: class. So it. It's a bit difficult to explain, but you end up having instead of comparing like 15 different properties, you can compare two valuable objects that each have 15 properties. Exactly, yeah. And then the assertion for equality will show you hopefully show you exactly all of the differences, not just the first one that's different.
1: Exactly, yeah. If it's different then you can you can go into the debugger or whatever and then you can navigate just the data that you're interested in on the value object instead of having to like do some database lookups or whatever it is in, in your complex object graph. And actually, this sounds complicated, but it's actually really easy to do in, in Python because you've got data classes. Yeah. So all you do is you knock together a few data classes for that test and then transform them, in, and it makes the test so much more readable.
0: Yeah, I love data classes for this because you, you can also even if your data if you just slurp in all the data for something then you can explicitly state which ones are not part of the equality operation
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah that's handy
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i recommend everyone gives that a try at least once
0: yeah you may not go back which principle was that part of
1: well it's sort of uh crowbarred into show only what matters okay (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it is the last one of those so um We're on to principle four now, which is don't repeat yourself, the most controversial of the principles. I don't know what your reaction is to hearing me say that you shouldn't repeat yourself in tests.
0: It's a different rule than in production code. I'll just say that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm interested to know what you think. I mean, um, I've heard a lot of people say to me, if I'm pairing with someone on a test, say, I might point out, this is very repetitive code. Can we kind of refactor this so it's drier? People often say to me, well, I don't think you should do that in tests. And I think each test should spell things out individually. And when I gave this talk at PyCon UK, I asked for a show of hands. Lots of people put their hands up and were like, yeah, I agree. You should repeat yourself in tests. So it's definitely a thing that a lot of people think that we should discard that principle when we're testing. Now, this is my argument for why we shouldn't. So I think there are two reasons for not repeating yourself. In production code and the first reason is to have a single source of truth so for example if you're like calculating tax say you want one place in your code where the tax rate is defined if it's defined in loads of different places then that's not very maintainable and like you know if you change it in one place then maybe you forget somewhere and the system will lack integrity but Sometimes, in order to do that, you have to sacrifice readability. You have to sacrifice code being intuitive to read because you've had to introduce some kind of indirection or abstraction. So that's a big reason for doing it in production code. And that doesn't apply to tests. You shouldn't be trying to have a single source of truth in tests. But there's another reason for writing dry code, which is it is more readable. And that you wouldn't be surprised to know is something I do think that is a reason why we should be writing dry code and tests. So, for example, if you've got five or six different tests which are all basically doing the same thing, but just with a couple of different tweaks of different things in each one, I find it really hard to go through and even spot what the difference is between each of them. Yeah, and I think it's much better to refactor that.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with this with that aspect. Uh, it's really annoying to have a not even just a couple tests that are almost identical, but I've seen it where there's like, wait, there's tons of tests that are almost identical and it is a mental effort to figure out what, what in there. Well, that's, that kind of goes back to show what's important. The lines of code in the Mm -hmm. test should all be important. You shouldn't be doing things that just don't matter or just irrelevant to what you're testing. I've seen people abuse it when, like there's API calls to something to set it up. And and there's like every test is having like one, like an error check, say check the error logs or something like that. And then they'll replace that one line with another function that contains that one line with, but Mm. I mean if all the tests all call that same function, that helper function and that helper function only has one line of code in it, you haven't really saved anything. You've just, Now I have, you know, three lines of code instead of one. Mm. (laughs) It it didn't really help anything. So there are times where using helper functions and hiding, so hiding information makes it harder to read. So don't repeat yourself is great if it adds readability. Your test should still tell a story. You should still be able to tell what's going on. Mm. Yeah, I I totally agree. Yeah, don't repeat yourself
1: doesn't equal readability. It's just that it's a tool that's really important in achieving readability sometimes. Yeah. Um, I don't think we should be
0: afraid of using it. And also, like you said, it helps highlight the show what's only what matters, show what's important, don't repeat yourself, might help. I totally agree.
1: And uh, it's all the standard ways that we're used to for not repeating ourselves. I sometimes even go object-oriented with tests. I'm not sure everyone would agree with this, but you can do that, for example, in PyCharm, not PyCharm. You can do that, for example, in PyTest by having a kind of a base test class, which doesn't begin with the word test, and then that won't be run. You can have a whole suite of tests on it and then have certain attributes on the base test class. And then you can extend that base test class with sort of concrete test suites, which sort of populate the attributes in such a way where the tests run. Now that could be a complete unmaintainable mess, but I have used it in ways which have made it much, much easier and kind of more declarative style of writing tests. What do you think about that?
0: I think it's brilliant. And I just I don't know if I discovered this from you or somebody else, but this this idea of um of having a base class that has tests in it that don't get run because the because the test class the class is to name something different. I think this is a brilliant use of inheritance within tests. You have to be careful because, you know, test classes and test objects are different kinds of things than other objects. I mean, they're, they're, Mm, the implementation is the the same, but they get, it's hard to think about them because Mm. test frameworks often use classes just as sort of containers for tests, even Mm. though they, I mean, they are instantiated, but they're instantiated way more than you realize. Mm. Like, so. yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, so if you've got a a class that has a bunch of tests in it, it's going to get instantiated one for each test.
1: Yeah, I mean I feel like you want you want to use your test classes as namespaces really. Yes. more than anything else. That's that's what they're useful for. If you're if you're setting loads of attributes on self, then that's I wouldn't say it's necessarily wrong, but it's a bit of a smell.
0: And it's going to be the behavior is going to surprise you. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we mentioned it before, but uh, parameterization in PyTest is another good way of um of not repeating yourself because you only write one test function, but you give in loads of different inputs to it.
0: Yeah. Okay, yep. Um parameterization's brilliant. And I guess that's one of the things we should hop back to good naming, that complex parameterizations often have silly dumb names. So spending a little bit of time writing an ID function or writing identifiers for parameterization is helpful for watching the test run so that your parameterizations are meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's it's annoying when you see that like, um, Oh, one failed true, false one, false, none. Great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or if you pass in a list of lists to like, if you parameterize a, a fixture and you just get like, um, you know, zero one, two, that just names the objects that come in,
1: oh, yeah, yeah,
0: so less than helpful,
1: yeah it's a bit of a danger error parameterization because I actually find I end up just putting comments by each case above it, but probably I should do what you said. not
0: as hard as it sounds,
1: so <laughs> it's more about just the the way in which um it ends up getting formatted and can be hard to read, I guess
0: yeah, one of the tricks I often do is to just have a um. One of the parameters, like if I'm doing a multi-parameter object or something, hmm. have one of the elements be something that's identifiable or even a comment just as a string value, and then have the ID function pull that element out. Oh, right, and maybe not even use
1: it in the test. It's yeah. Just
0: for... yeah, it's oh, just for brilliant. identifying.
1: I like that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, that's the don't repeat yourself principle. Okay, we are got you ready two... for principle five? Yeah, we only got two more. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. If your head's hurting, like we're nearly done. So, principle five is quite a well known principle, actually, but it's a good principle, which is arrange, act, assert. This is just a way of structuring tests. It's also sometimes called given, when, then. And it's just a sort of pattern for particularly for unit tests, I'd say so for sort of lower level tests where you're running lots of fast ones. So a test has kind of three structures, or it should do, it arranges, it sets all the data up, then it acts, it does the thing that we're testing, and then it asserts. And a really, really simple way of making your tests easier to read, first of all, conform to that structure, but also just put like a blank line between the three different sections, and it just immediately signals what bit of the test is actually exercising or the purpose of each bit of the test. It's just a really easy thing to do.
0: Yeah, I even sometimes either stick arrange, act, assert, or give and win then as comment words. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that done. Yeah, it can be annoying if it's a small test, but for a larger test, it does. Mm. It, it's worth it to me to to split that up to say. Yeah, this is the part that I'm intending to to be testing. So that if an assertion happens in the arrange part, it tells you different information. Yeah. Partly means absolutely. that the test name isn't going to tell you much about why it's failing. Of course, with some tests you might want to diverge
1: from that principle a bit. Like if it's a sort of bigger end-to-end test that uses a database or something, you might and, and there's quite expensive you might more want to think of it as telling a story or going on a journey through the data. So maybe you'd have an arranged stage and then, then you act, then you assert, then you act, then you assert. I think that's okay for a certain kind of test, but still it's good to signal that's what's going on.
0: Yeah, even at higher level tests, it's fun to try to figure out how, if it's not natural to put it in this state, how could I? There's been many times where the real answer is, to split the test up into multiple tests. So if I've got Mm -hmm. like really five different things that I'm checking or even three things that I'm really checking, maybe I can push the arrange part into a fixture to get run at a module level or a class level, and then have the tests be just different tests that test different things. So do the complicated, expensive work and then arrange assert, arrange assert or the Mm -hmm. act assert, act assert move those into their own tests because I'm really testing different aspects. Sometimes it's more work than it's worth. Sometimes the entire having the nice story, but having most of your tests be these story type tests that have a bunch of act and asserts in them is a smell and Mm. is something that you should try to not have all of your tests be like that. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean,
1: I feel like I increasingly think about tests in terms of like signal And, you know, people talk about fast tests, slow tests. I actually find it more relevant for me anyway, is what kind of a signal do I want to get from the test? Do I want something really detailed that says, this is your bug, or do I want something that gives me a lot more confidence about the the sort of wider functioning of the system? I've heard people refer to them as high gear, low gear tests. I, I think that's really nice. So like, are you like climbing a hill in first gear in your car, or are you driving down the motorway really fast, not very much control. Maybe if the test fails, you won't get very much information. And I think the way to think about it is if there's some failures in your test suite, you should always be going to the unit tests first because they'll give you better information. And that's how you should think about unit tests as like, they tell you important stuff, yeah, but they're a bit less reliable.
0: Yeah, I like the high gear, low gear thing. And also, if you are in a hurry, you can do the high gear type tests for most of your system and do the low gear stuff for the problematic stuff. Absolutely, yeah. You'll find out where the problem you are. If you're, if you're having to debug a test a lot, maybe split it up. So mm,
1: I totally agree with that. And yeah. of course, also, high gear tests allow you to refactor better usually, because they're more distant from the implementation. And so it speeds up that as well. So yeah, that's a a a range-act-assert one. The final principle is a very simple principle, which is aim high. So I guess main argument is that we tend to treat tests like a second-class citizen. And my first tip is simply treat tests like a first-class citizen. It's just an attitude change, no more than that. So, for example, I think, how do we make code good? How do we improve the readability of code? We do thorough peer review. Now, are we doing as thorough peer review on our test code as our production code? I don't think so. I mean, I speak personally. Like, I find it harder to review tests than I do to review the code that's running on production. I, you know, I have to force myself sometimes to like really give it attention and to say, well, why don't we... Maybe we should change the test like this. People are a bit like, but this is the test. Well, who cares? And also uh, refactoring tests, going back to tests later and, and changing the way they're organized is another way to improve their readability. But it's not something we're maybe in the habit of doing.
0: Yeah, I try to tell people on my team to review tests, actually code also, but review tests as if you were, everybody else is on vacation. You're the only one working and the CI system shows a failure in this test. And you need to figure out what's wrong. Ah,
1: nice. Yeah.
0: That's really what we want. I want a test failure for anybody on the team to be able to jump in. And and maybe you do have to do some, maybe you have to re, I think it's fine if, if you have to rerun the tests or look at the local variables or debug mm. it a little bit. But it shouldn't be that hard to figure out what's wrong from a test failure, so. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. Yeah, and there's other, another way you can sort of hack yourself.
1: Basically, I think reviewing tests first is a good idea. And I don't know if you've noticed, but on a pull request in GitHub, tests are usually down the bottom. I mean, this might be just because they're in alphabetical order or something, but they've always been down the bottom in the the projects I've worked on. And uh, I think, so I end up reading at the end. And I think that reading them at the beginning, like scrolling down to the bottom and looking for the tests first, is a good way to get yourself to engage with whether or not a test actually explains what's going on. And then you go and you look at the implementation.
0: I think that we have a good reason here to petition really the world (laughs) that T should be the first letter of the alphabet.
1: (laughs) Definitely, definitely. (laughs) There is actually a hack you can do, which is I'm a real fan of breaking up pull requests into smaller, really small commits and then encouraging people who are reviewing my code to work their way down the commit list rather than just look at all the changes in a pull request. So what you can do is you can start your pull request with the tests, failing tests, mark them as X fail using PyTest, mark X fail. And then you're like, okay, this is the first thing you need to look at. It's just the test. Maybe you can stub out the functions, but you leave the functions empty. And then people are actually encouraged to think about, right, does this Scope out what you're trying to achieve. So it kind of becomes the sort of introduction to the pull request. And then you can build up the implementation. And eventually that final implementation slots in and the reviewer can also see the X fail got removed. Great. The test pass. Job done. Nice. Yeah. I like it. So those are my six principles for readable tests. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed them.
0: I did enjoy them. I'm the kind of person that enjoys the talking about testing. So
1: it's good. You should start a podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah uh, and i could have on people that that also think about tests a lot like you that would be a good <laughs> idea. yeah Definitely. no no this has been really fun and i i think it'd be great to i haven't watched your your talk but we'll presentation but your the pike on uk talk we will link to it in the show notes yeah there's actually i mean i've basically just read out the slides of that talk
1: so i recommend if you sort of didn't understand anything i said or if any of the readers there's lots of code examples in the talk so you should be able to follow along and it hopefully will make a bit more sense
0: if you disagree with one of the, one or more of these principles i think it would be a good idea for you to come on the show and talk about why you disagree with it because that'd be Absolutely. interesting yeah <laughs> uh. well thanks so much for joining us today this was fun thanks for having me it's great thank you david for the principles, and also reminding us to take care to make our tests readable. Thank you, Patreon supporters. Join them by going to testandcode.com support. Thank you, PyCharm, for sponsoring this episode. The link to the extended pro trial is at testandcode.com PyCharm. That link is also in our show notes at testandcode.com slash 112. That's all for now. Now go out and test something, but make sure your test is readable.